You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 57, Choices. In this episode, I want to look at another story by the Argentine author Jorge Luis Borges. In the last episode, we covered his story in uh, the episode entitled Memories. And in this episode, I want to look at another story entitled The Garden of Forking Paths. It's a story that experiments with the concept of time along with other interesting concepts. Uh, Borges is just a really fascinating writer, and he gives you a lot of things to think about, which is why I've been reading him lately and talking about him on the podcast. Whenever you start the story, you should know right off the bat, because Borges is giving you clues, that you're going to be reading a puzzle. Uh, Borges loved puzzles, labyrinths, And there's plenty of that in the story, but also in the structure of the story. I'm going to try not to get too far into the weeds with this, but I need to build how this story is structured for you so that you can see what you're dealing with. It starts with a quote from some made-up history book uh, called A History of World War that um, stands on its own, and it goes from that to another scrap, like a a section of a deposition that that contains the story that you're looking at. And so you have these, basically the story is told in two scraps of, of documents, one a history book, the other a deposition, collected by this narrator who kind of disappears when you get lost in the deposition. So already you're looking at this thing and you're trying to piece these two scraps together and nobody really knows how they fit together. It already throws you off, which is what it's meant to do. It's meant to make you feel like you're trying to solve some kind of puzzle or that you're caught in some kind of a labyrinth. And there's another clue to it as the uh, protagonist in the story is trying to find his way to an address, to a location, and he gets directions, and the person giving him directions tells him, you won't get lost if you take a left at every crossroad, which is advice that is given to people who are trying to solve a maze or a labyrinth. Just keep taking left turns until you get out, if you can't figure it out some other way. So all of these things, among other things, tell you that Borges is giving us an almost unsolvable riddle here in the story. And despite the fact that it really is an inscrutable story, there are some really interesting things to think about. And for me, they've given me some insights into possibly uh, how God works and how His providence plays out in our lives. Uh, But before I, I get to that, Let me get to the plot of the story, and let me see if I can tell the story for you in a succinct way to give us something to to base our observations off of. The story's protagonist is this Chinese agent of Nazi Germany named Yu Sun. That's spelled Y-U-T-S-U-N. And uh, he was formerly a Chinese-English instructor, but now he's employed uh, in the German armies, and he's being pursued in the story by a Captain Richard Madden, who's an Irishman working for England. So you've got these misplaced people in this uh, labyrinth of a story, and uh, one of them, the 
who we would see as the good guy, is chasing the bad guy, this agent of Imperial Germany. So Yusun has a mission, which is to communicate the location of a new British artillery installation to his superiors. But he's being pursued by this Captain Madden, and he's worried that he's not going to be able to to deliver the message to his superiors before Madden takes him out. So Yusun consults the phone directory, and we're told that he finds the name of the one person who can pass on this information, and then he starts heading out towards the address that he found in the phone directory. He boards a train just ahead of Madden, his pursuant, and uh, Madden just misses him as the train takes off, so he's almost caught. And he is making his way out to this place, which we learn to be the house of a Dr. Stephen Albert, who is a person who studies Chinese literature and culture. And uh, he also happened to be a student of one of the ancestors of the main character, Yu Sun, a, a government official named Su Pin. Pin quit a very successful political career to write a long novel and also to build a labyrinth, which he spent 13 years doing it, but nobody could ever find this mysterious labyrinth that he had supposedly spent so much time building, nor could they make any sense out of the novel that he had been working on for all that time, and the novel seemed to be unfinished. So Yu Sun, who was related to this this author, was kind of embarrassed by him and didn't understand him at all. Although he had uh, fantasies about the labyrinth and wondered uh, if it really did exist and what it might look like. Uh, but as he came to this house of Dr. Stephen Albert, remember he's pursuing this guy, trying to find this house because he believes that Albert can help him pass the location of this British artillery onto his superiors. He gets involved in a discussion as they discover that Yu Sun is related to this author, uh, Su Pin. And Albert revealed to him something he'd never known before, which was the two things that confused him about his ancestor, the novel and the labyrinth, were one and the same. That's why he couldn't find the labyrinth, because the novel was the labyrinth. And this was discovered by Albert after he found a letter written by Sue Penn, which said, among other things, I leave to various future times, but not to all, my garden of forking paths. That phrase, to various future times, but not to all, made Albert think, you know, this, this may tell me something about the nature of, of this novel. That's a very unusual phrase because who talks of various future times? You might say, I leave to the future or I leave to my descendants or those who will live after me this work of art or whatever, but you would never say various future times, speaking of future times in the plural, and it made him, it got him to thinking about alternative universes, a multiverse, alternate times, and those kinds of things, and he discovered that this novel was confusing because it wasn't linear, 
It didn't follow linear time in which, say, the protagonist chooses one course of action to the expense of all the others. Instead, it was a novel that traced the story throughout all possible futures, all possible choices, and the novel itself was a garden of forking paths. It was a picture of diverging, converging, and parallel times all at once. Uh, so obviously it was very long, it was very uh, confusing, convoluted, but there was a reason why it was that way. If you tried to write a novel like that, you can imagine it taking you a very long time. You wouldn't finish it, and it would be very confusing, especially to the person who didn't know what he was reading whenever he picked it up. Um, it, it, the novel basically asked the question, what if time were like space? You know, you can have spaces existing outside of the one that you're currently in. Like right now, I'm sitting in a room of my house, and even though I can't see it, I know that all the other rooms of my house are still there, existing parallel to this space. And I know the road outside my house is there, and I know that uh, the church where I preach is still located on its property, and I know about a lot of other spaces. I know that all the spaces that exist are existing at parallel parallel to one another right now. I know that. And the novel's asking about time. Could time be the same way? Could all possible times exist all at once? In other words, let's say I didn't choose to record this podcast this afternoon, which may have been the better choice, but let's say I made that choice. Is there another me in an alternate universe on an alternate timeline who didn't choose to do that, who's doing something else at this time? Well, the novel in this story explores that kind of thing. And uh, there's statements in the story, for example, like this. Um, Albert is explaining this book to you, son, and he says, Sometimes the pathways of this labyrinth converge. For example, you came to this house, but in other possible pasts, you are my enemy, in others, my friend. And that will turn out to be a foreshadowing of things to come. Uh, so as Dr. Albert is explaining all of this to you, son, about his ancestor, about you, son's ancestor, uh, the the German here, he's the Chinese German, I guess I should say, he's growing in his admiration for the doctor. And there's a surprise though at the end of the story because he asks for another look at the letter, and when Dr. Albert gets up and turns his back to Yu Sun, Yu Sun shoots him and kills him dead. The next thing that happens is that Captain Madden, the guy that's been pursuing him, uh, breaks in and arrests Yu Sun, but the name of the location of the British artillery got through to Berlin, and uh, the authorities learned about it and bombed the British artillery. Now, how did Yu Sun get his message to them if he shot the man that was supposedly the key to this whole plan? And the answer is that the name of the city that w where the British artillery was located was Albert which is the name of this 
man that he killed up till now. We didn't know why. That's how he got his message across. He went and committed a, a what seemed to be a senseless murder to everyone else, but to his superiors in Berlin, they knew he was passing them a message, the name of the city. So it's a pretty neat little twist in this um, kind of a mystery uh, thriller that he writes, and it reads really well. It reads a lot better than the way that I explained it, but I did all of that to try to introduce this idea of bifurcating time or alternate timelines. Those are very interesting concepts. And I guess the first question to ask is, is this a reasonable way to view time? I mean, is, should we even be thinking about this? Is it even possible? You might be surprised to learn that since the 50s, physicists have theorized uh, this possibility, the possibility of alternate universes. There's so many different names for it, multiverses, alternate timelines, choose whatever designation you want. For the purposes of this podcast, it will work because I know so little about it, I, I really shouldn't delve very deeply into it. Um, that is an idea that has been theorized by some very smart people, that alongside this universe, there are all possible universes. But the problem that I have with it in my small brain is I just can't get over the idea of there being other me's besides me. That reaches beyond the realm of credibility for me uh, because other is not me. Other cannot equal me. So I really can't think of that. I just can't comprehend it. I, I know that there's some theories about it and it it makes some interesting ideas to me about, you know, the possibility of other dimensions, but other dimensions for me is different than the idea of alternate timelines. And I don't want to get any further into that for fear that I'll say something even stupider than what I've already said, but just suffice it to say that there are physicists working on the idea of alternate timelines as well as other dimensions, and there's some very interesting theories out there. Um, how can the story, though, and the ideas of it be helpful to us? Um, well, there's, there's several things. For one, you know, if you think about it, time really is like a labyrinth. It's so unpredictable. One choice leads to another, and then another, and another, and, and time really is like a garden of forking paths. It's a very interesting picture of, of how our choices lead to other choices and soon fork out into this very complicated maze. Um, all that said, we can't change the past and we don't know the future, so what really matters and what really exists for us is what is happening in the present. And the protagonist of the story says as much in some reflections in the story. Here's one uh, segment. He says, then I reflected that all things happen, happen to one, precisely now. Century follows century, and things happen only in the present. There are countless men in the air, on land, and at sea, and all that really happens, happens to me. And he's thinking about that, and he's starting to make sense, and starting to agree with some of the things that, that I think about time. It seems very simple, but then... As he's reflecting on that, he stops himself and he says, 
the almost unbearable memory of Madden, this, this guy chasing him, put an end to all those wandering thoughts. So as he started to simplify things and say, well, all there is is the present time, he immediately thought about his pursuant and started to feel like he didn't have a choice in life. He didn't have free will. And, and that put an end to that simplified thought of, hey, I, I got a clean slate here with the present and I can, I can make a run for it and maybe I can escape and maybe I can accomplish my mission and maybe everything will work out. Um, so that was an interesting part of it. I think that the story says something about the relationship of free will to determinism. Um, there's a lot about that in this. And, and one of the things that is said in the explanation of the Garden of Forking Paths is that sometimes the pathways of the labyrinth will converge. You know, kind of like our highways do. You'll be following one highway and uh, say it's Highway 157 and you're driving down 157 and then all of a sudden you see a junction with Highway 133 and then for a while you're on both highways at the same time. The signs say 133 and 157 and then you'll see them break off. There'll be a fork in the road. 133 goes one way, 157 goes another way. They converge and then part again. And sometimes in this theory of the alternate timelines, the pathways of the labyrinth will converge. The alternate timelines will come back together again, which is a really interesting idea. This may explain something to us about the relationship of free will to determinism. Uh, let, me, let me go back to a great debate that occurred long ago in Christian history between uh, the scholar Augustine and the British monk Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius was this monk who said, he argued that uh, we do not inherit Adam's sin. He didn't believe in original sin. He believed that everyone was responsible for his own choices, that it was possible for us not to sin, but unfortunately we all have chosen to sin and uh, we suffer from that. He believed that we could repent of sin, become Christians, and, and choose not to sin in the future as we sought to be holy and live after God. Augustine disagreed with this. He believed in original sin. Uh, he believed that sin was unavoidable, that we had no choice in sinning because of the, uh, our forefather Adam and because of the effects of his sin on the world. And so he believed that um, we had to be saved by God without our own free will involved, that he had to irresistibly save us by grace, and he predestined certain ones to be saved in this way, while he did not choose that for others. And uh, you might know the story, you might not, but in 431, at the Council of Ephesus, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic for his position on free will. And it was decided by the church at that time that determinism was how the whole thing worked, how salvation by grace worked. And that's pretty much been the winning side of the debate up until now. Pretty much all Protestant religions believe that. Um, I think this way that the pathways of time converge and diverge in the story may 
provide an illustration for the relationship between free will and determinism and may help us put together the passages in the Bible that talk about predestination and grace and the passages of the Bible that that obviously talk about free will and our choices and our responsibilities for sin. And the Bible talks about both. Could it not be the case that on the one hand we are free in our individual lives, but on the other, all of history is headed for some point of convergence, and that all of our paths will eventually converge in some way. Um, I, I think that's what the Bible presents. And when it talks about sin and our responsibility to do what's right and follow the commandments of God and respond to the gospel and the plan of salvation, I believe that's points where we do have choices. We can choose to do that. We can choose to obey or not to obey. But then I also think that God is sovereign and that he's in control of history and that all of us are headed for a convergence point, the second coming of Jesus Christ and Judgment Day. Now, that is illustrated in the story. You'd think that a story about forking paths would support absolute free will, but it's strangely deterministic in some points. Uh, I'll read you a couple of excerpts. In uh, one point, when Yu's son was, was being chased by this, by this uh, English agent, he said, I proceeded while with the eyes of a man already dead. I contemplated the fluctuations of the day, which would probably be my last, and watched the diffuse coming of night. So that phrase... I proceeded with the eyes of a man already dead. He was still living. Was there not a choice? Was there not some way in which he could escape? Well, the way he's wording it there, it doesn't sound like it. it sounds like his fate was sealed. Um, another another um, example. In the description of this, this, this maze, this puzzle of a novel that we've been talking about, there are alternate versions of reality that are given. And after one such example, uh, it says that each version of the tales in this book ended with the phrase, Thus the heroes fought with tranquil heart and bloody sword. They were resigned to killing and dying. So this is in the book with all the alternative alternative times and choices laid side by side, yet each one of them ends with this idea that the heroes were resigned, meaning they had to do it, to killing and to dying. So the narrator seems to propose that there are things that are predetermined, that you can't change, yet we have these choices that have to be free, otherwise there wouldn't be so many different forking paths, so many different paths that diverge from one one another, even though they sometimes converge. The theory seems to be that all infinite choices conflate at certain points so that some things, you know, death would be one of those, are inevitable. So is that maybe a picture of what's going on in, in the relationship between free will and predestination. God gives us free will because he made us in his image. And so 
most of our lives are constructed by the choices that we make, especially the temporal part of our lives. But when it comes to the end of time, it's going to be the same for all of us. Uh, those redeemed by Christ will go in one direction, and those that have not been redeemed by Christ will go in the other direction. Maybe that's a picture of what's going on as we see these paths converge and diverge again. Another interesting idea is what this story may say about how God carries out His will in this life. I don't believe that God just wound up the created order and then let it, let it uh, unwind on its own without interfering in any way. I, I believe in a God who actively gets involved in our lives, though I don't think that he has to use miracles to do that. Uh, we can distinguish the miracles from his non-miraculous activity using the word providence and talk about how God can use the laws of nature that he set in place to accomplish his purposes, say, in answering our prayer or something like that. Uh, in an earlier podcast, I talked about chaos theory or the butterfly effect. And chaos theory says that small changes in initial conditions can bring about big consequences. Uh, the, the illustration that's often used about it is that a butterfly flapping its wings, say, somewhere on the African continent, can create disturbances in the atmosphere that, although minute, can lead to the consequences of hurricanes on the coast of Florida or something like that. You've probably seen the butterfly effect in popular movies, television shows, and books. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating idea to think about, and there is some science behind it to show that small changes in initial conditions can lead to big consequences. Um, but the interesting thing about it is they're deterministic. In other words, once that change happens, it sets off a domino effect that will have a certain result on down the road, but it's so complex, so difficult for finite beings to see it, that it looks chaotic. That's where the name chaos comes from. We can't see the pattern, but there is a pattern there. We may not be able to see it, but God can see it. Now you put that together with the forking paths in the story, and you have this idea that's pretty fascinating, that we're all making these choices and going down these unpredictable paths, and we can't see where all this leads, but God can see all of these minute changes and all of their outcomes, even though they're a labyrinth to us. Uh, it's the difference from being up over the maze and being down in the maze. Um, one of my kids went on a field trip one time to a corn maze, and uh, it, was, it was kind of funny because he was down in the maze trying to find his way out of it, and he kept running into places. I could see that he was about to go to a dead end or take a wrong turn because I was up on a platform above the maze where I could see the whole thing all at once. Well, in life, we're like my son in the corn maze, whereas God is on that platform up above the labyrinth, looking down, able to see the whole thing. He knows where our actions are going. Does he, through natural courses, 
accomplish his will by looking at the labyrinth that we're creating, the forking paths, seeing outcomes, and choosing one of them to accomplish his purposes? Uh, Is that the way providence works? I don't know for sure, but I do know that throughout time God has used natural disasters, he has used enemies of his people, he has used sin, he has used um, good choices, bad choices, small, seemingly insignificant things to bring about his will. There's a great example of that in 2 Kings chapter 3, where three kings, the kings of Edom, Israel, and Judah, go against Moab in a battle. And the Moabites have them outnumbered. They're out in the wilderness, uh, Israel, Judah, and Edom are, without any water, and they're in desperation, so they call the prophet Elisha for help. And Elisha comes and he tells them, that uh, God will come to their aid and he will, number one, make the dry stream beds full of pools of water. And he says, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. He said, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. And then he also adds that the Lord would give the Moabites into their hand. But he doesn't tell them how they'll do it. He just says that they will be able to attack every fortified city and every choice city and fell every tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So he tells them all of this will come about the next morning at the time of the offering of the sacrifice. And sure enough, the next morning, at that time, water, it says, came from the direction of Edom the country was filled with water. Now, I don't know if that was a rainstorm or water coming down the dry stream beds until it got to the place where they were. That's not explained. I'm assuming that rain fell somewhere because that's the usual way that God brings water onto the earth. But those dry stream beds filled up just as predicted, which is something that happens every day. Especially in that part of the world, there are a lot of dry stream beds and then torrential rains that suddenly fill them up so that you see rivers where there was once no rivers. That happens all the time. But more things happen. Once that, that um, ball starts rolling, all kinds of other things happen. The Moabites heard the kings had come up to fight against them and uh, they, they were called out and drawn up at the border, and they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and when the Moabites saw the sun in the east shining on that water, it looked to them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. So, unprepared for battle, they run out to the Israelite camps thinking that they're all dead, that they killed one another, only to find that they were very much in good health and ready for a battle. And so they easily destroyed Moab and then went into their fortified cities which were left open and took the spoil. All of that happened because of rain coming at a particular time when it was unexpected. Now, Did God know that that chain of events would happen? Could he see all the possibilities? Did he see all the possible worlds, even if they didn't exist at the time? 
could he in his infinite wisdom see all of that lay out and choose the one, the one in which the rain came overnight, looked like blood early in the morning dawn, fooled the Moabites who were not very wise and running out to the Israelite camps and result in a battle in which the cities were left unfortified so the Israelites could come in and steal and loot and pillage. Uh, did he do it that way? You know, it's, it's a pretty interesting explanation of how he could have done it. All the worlds are possible to him, although they're not all real. So in a sense, there are alternate universes for God because he can picture them all for one thing, which is something we can't do. And he can make them happen, and he doesn't necessarily have to use miracles to do it because uh, they can be brought about through something as small as, as a rainstorm at the right time. Uh, so that's another thing that this story can make us think about. And there's so many other profound ideas. I'm not sure that I could fully explore the story like it needs to be. But that's where we'll stop for now. And I, and I don't know what will be next. Uh, this podcast itself is like a garden of forking paths. So I will leave this episode to various future times, but not to all. And until next time, this is Wide Margins.